Gresham College presents Early Science and Historical Perspective, the fourth part, including The Setting Up of the Royal Society by Professor Michael Hunter of Birkbeck, University of London. Um, what I want to do in this talk is to consider various aspects of the origins and early evolution of the Royal Society, and I want to start by going back over the gr- some of the ground that Alan has just covered uh, to do with the role of the Oxford Group as the Society's key precursor. And so here is Wilkins, um, a, a port- <coughs> an engraved portrait from the last, last year of his life. Um, he... Wilkins obviously is responsible for the group. In fact, he even solicited Robert Boyle to go there from from rural Dorset um, in in the mid-1650s, and Wilkins presided over it. But what I want to stress about the Oxford Club in the context of the origins of the Royal Society is to the degree to which it wasn't just um, an informal grouping, but had quite a formal structure, as is shown by a set of rules drawn up for the Society in 1651, of which a manuscript copy survives in the Bodleian. These rules foreshadow the Royal Society in various ways. They provided for regular meetings, admittance by majority vote a catalogue of members, and the levy of subscriptions to pay for publicly exhibited experiments. Equally revealing are the plans for systematically appraising the the existing scientific literature with a view to to, to finding experiments which could be tried from it, of which we learn from a letter from Seth Ward to Sir Justinian Isham in 1652. So this organisational structure in the Oxford group looks forward to the Royal Society in a way that hadn't been the case with earlier groups, such as that which had met in London in 1645. And I think it gives the Oxford group real significance from this point of view. Also significant is the actual research programme of the Oxford group, about which you've already heard from Alan. And I hope you'll forgive me if I single out the work of Robert Boyle in this um, connection during the time that he was associated with the group in the 1650s. Arguably, this was the most intellectually productive period of Boyle's entire life, when he wrote many of his most important books, although none was published till after 1660. Here I'm thinking of books like Certain Physiological Essays and Boyle's Histories of Colours and Cold, in which he laid down the programme for testing the ideas of the new mechanical philosophy by painstaking experiment, which in many ways provided the inspiration for the scientific work associated with the Royal Society after 1660. There were also his more programmatic statements against Aristotelianism in The Origin of Forms and Qualities, published finally in 1665, and for the potential of science in Of the Usefulness of Natural Philosophy, published in 1663. But all of these books were actually written in Oxford in the late 1650s, and his work there reached a climax with the investigations that he carried out in the last two years of the interregnum with the air pump, designed for him by Robert Hooke and show, shown in this, in this portrait here. These, these findings were published in the summer of 1660 as New Experiments Physico-Mechanical, touching the spring of the air and its effects. And intellectually, this provides the template for the Royal Society as much as the 1651 rules had in organisational terms. But when it was founded in 1660, the Royal Society was different and more grandiose in its ambitions than the Oxford Experimental Philosophy Club had been. 
Quite apart from anything else, its early membership included various groups of people other than those who had been members of the Oxford group. This is true even of the initial group of 12 who met after Christopher Wren's astronomy lecture at Gresham College on the 28th of November 1660 and resolved to set up a college for the promoting of physico-mathematical experimental learning. Men such as Boyle, Wilkins, Petty and Wren, who'd been at Oxford, were balanced by others who had not, of which the most important were prominent members of the royal court, recently returned from exile abroad, including Lord Brunker, Sir Robert Murray, Sir Paul Neal, and Alexander Bruce, later Earl of Kincardine. There are also London physicians and intellectuals, such as William Ball, Abraham Hill, and Lawrence Rook. As the member grew from this initial nucleus, each of these components was reinforced, and the result was that the society took on a somewhat different character from the Oxford group. In particular, I think that it was partly in terms of this influx of figures associated with the government of the day that one can account for one key facet of the society's work in its early years, its enthusiasm for large-scale data collecting, often involving the preparation of questionnaires to be sent to people in distant locations throughout the known world, which can be seen, I think, as one of the society's most characteristic early activities. Interestingly, it seems that this practice was one that Boyle learnt from the Royal Society rather than vice versa, although thereafter Boyle adopted it with the zeal of a convert, using it not only to accumulate information but also to structure his existing findings. This enthusiasm for systematic data collecting was typical of a truly breathtaking ambition on the Society's part in its early years to comprehensiveness of coverage in its study of nature. The expressions of its aims that emanated from the society in its early years are notable for their emphasis on completeness as a goal. In order to know what was already known and what still required investigation, the society planned to scrutinise all books previously written on related topics and thus to collect all the phenomena of nature hitherto observed and all philosophical experiments hitherto made and recorded. In his official history of the Royal Society, published in 1667, the writer Thomas Spratt explained how their purpose is, in short, to make faithful records of all the works of art and nature that can come within their reach. And the first secretary, Henry Oldenburg, similarly explained in a letter to John Winthrop in Connecticut in 1667, Sir, you will please to remember that we have taken the whole universe to task and we were obliged to do so by the nature of our design. Institutionally, the society's ambitions were equally grandiose. To achieve its aims, its founders visualised a new type of institution, a publicly constituted body, national in its remit, devoted to the pursuit and promotion of scientific research. This is reflected in the society's attempts to make its membership truly representative of national endeavour in its chosen field, with figures being recruited at Oxford, Cambridge and elsewhere who were precluded from taking part in the society's activities on a regular basis by their distance from London. Equally noteworthy was the elaborate constitutional structure that the society set up for itself from the outset in its charters, which gave it a status comparable to that of legally incorporated bodies like the chartered companies of the City of London. 
In fact, having obtained a charter in 1662, the Society's founders then had to secure a second one in 1663 at a cost of a further £53 in addition to the £35 spent on the first. And the reason for this was that the Society's constitutional structure was set out, was set out much more clearly in the second charter than had been the case with the first, particularly concerning the quora for decision-making and elections. There were also elaborate statutes which went into detail about how fellows and officers were to be elected and what the duties of the officers should be, how meetings were to be held, how the society's work should be conducted, even though how those who failed to work for the good of the society might be expelled. The institution that resulted was a complex and sophisticated one. The society was governed by a council of 21, elected annually, including a president, treasurer and two secretaries, all of whom swore an oath, oath on appointment. Election was by secret ballot and required a formal proposal. Once elected, fellows were obliged to pay an admission fee and an annual subscription. The charter also entitled the society to employ staff, to own property, to erect a college or colleges, to sue and be sued in the courts, and to appoint its own printer and license its own books. There, were also, there was also elaborate provision for the records which the society expected to keep, including a statute book containing all these documents, along with journal books, register books, and letter books. In fact, they, there was even provision for a chest to keep all these documents in, which still survives at the Royal Society, and I show you here. These grandiose ambitions are well encapsulated in the frontispiece to Spratt's History of the Royal Society, in which the goddess fame crowns a bust of Charles II, who's flanked by the Society's first president, William Viscount Brunker, and the Society's intellectual inspiration, Francis Bacon, with the Society's coat of arms and motto prominently displayed above. And in addition, if you look carefully, if, if you could see um, from the distance you are, you'll note that to the left, in front of the bookcase, are the Society's diploma or charter and its statutes and journal book, along with the rather grand silver gilt mace that Charles II presented to the Society and which it still has. Through the plethora of pieces of scientific equipment in the background and the books on the bookcase, the, the Spratt frontispiece also indicates the grandiose intellectual aims which this establishment was intended to further. Initially, the Society embarked on a programme of corporate experiment, the collective testimony of the members being seen as a key part of the process by which knowledge would be validated. Indeed, the way in which institutionalisation encouraged the kind of inductive, accumulative view of science that had been championed a generation earlier by Francis Bacon <coughs> is clear from the other comparable body that was set up um, a few years later, the Académie des Sciences in Paris. And this went even further in um, encouraging collaborative investigation in the Royal Society, even jointly publishing its findings in books with titles like <coughs> Memoirs for the Natural History of animals and plants by the members of the Royal Academy of Sciences. And this is illustrated with books, with, 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 illustrate, with pictures showing this collaborative investigation in, in progress. This is one of the um, illustrations to the book about the Academy des Sciences. Sadly, we don't have comparable evocations of the society in action, but this will do as a substitute. Returning to the Royal Society, equally typical was its proclivity to delegate responsibilities to committees, corporate subsets of the Society's overall institutional structure, which were set up from the outset to deal with matters like correspondence or the compilation of inquiries. 
And then in 1664, when the society began to find that it was asking too much for the whole of knowledge to be reformed at its weekly meetings, the reaction was to set up eight specialist committees dealing with different aspects of its work, from astronomy and optics to anatomy and chemistry. Here are the minutes of one of these committees that for that responsible for perusing travel books in search for useful information which would further the society's goal of understanding nature. No less typical was the ambitiousness of the society's plan to have a museum of objects that would be complete. Spratt described a general collection of all the effects of arts and the common or monstrous works of nature as one of the principal intentions of the society as soon as they were reduced into a fixed assembly. And I think that's a very revealing juxtaposition. And he added that by the time he wrote, they had already drawn together into one room the greatest part of all the several things that are scattered throughout the universe. And from this point, we do actually see, have um, records of some of these objects. Here is a picture of a, a whorefinch uh, illustrated from the specimen in the, in the Society's collection in a book published in 1668. So these were the ambitions of the Society, but in practice, they proved more than the Society could sustain. And what's particularly interesting, I think, is the process by which the society settled into a somewhat different set of roles from those that had originally been envisaged, uh, something which I've recently um, published an article about in the last issue of History Today. So I won't just repeat what I said there, but will summarise and extrapolate from from what I um, said in that. I think the point is that since no such body had existed before, it was necessary for a process of experiment, even of trial and error, to take place before the mode of operation emerged, which was to prove most effective. And it's this process that I want to elucidate here. The extent to which the choices made by the society's founders that have long been familiar came at the expense of other somewhat surprising, sometimes surprising alternatives is epitomised by this document by John Evelyn, now in the British Library, which shows alternative coats of arms and mottos for the society. It indicates that instead of the blank 